We're coming to James chapter 4. Every now and then I pay attention to the section heads, and uh, they are not the inspired words of Scripture, but they are what the editors think the passage is about. So as I was looking at James chapter 4 and wondering what it's about, I thought, well, I wonder what the editors were imagining this is all about. It simply says in my Bible, things to avoid. That's a lot of help, right? Things to avoid. Um, So I'm going to read you James chapter 4, and then we're going to figure out what things we're supposed to avoid. Here's what he tells us. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your own desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive. Because when you ask, you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That's why scriptures say God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother judges him. He speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not one lawgiver and you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbors? So back to the title, Things to Avoid, didn't give me a lot of help. But I do want to jump into this passage, and uh, it has taken me back to the early days of my sort of Christian journey in church. So back to when I was a kid and when I was a boy, teenager, young adult, and the fact that I grew up with a church that was full of things to avoid, right? Um, Back some years ago, we were on vacation in the Caribbean with our, our one son and his family, and Michaela, at that point, had not learned to read anything, so it was several years ago. And in the resort, there were these signs all around the place, and they were signs, you know, pictures like of alligators with an X through them or, you know, a fruit tree or something with an X through them. So the point was that all these signs were things not to do. So Michaela had observed these signs, and she said, I can only read the signs that tell me what I'm not allowed to do. And I thought, that's kind of how people view Christianity, isn't it, in church? Church is about all the things you're not allowed to do, all the things you're supposed to avoid. So whoever was the editor in my Bible version 
had a look at James chapter 4 and said, there you go. There are all the signposts, all the things you should not do if you're going to be a good Christian. And I thought, just in preparing this week, this could be a real downer. I mean, I'm going to just tell you all the things not to do, and we'll be good, right? I think it's more than that. But I did grow up in that kind of Christianity. Um, I remember hearing someone sort of quip, um, I don't dance and I don't chew, I don't go with, go with girls that do, right? Um, and there were various things that we weren't allowed to do. We, we, we weren't allowed to dance when I was a kid. Um, my dad was a ballroom dancer before he was saved. And when he became a Christian, he had to quit ballroom dancing. Now, I mean, the result of that is that I can't dance. If he had kept up his ballroom dancing, maybe I would have learned something. Annameth and I were at a resort in Harrison Hot Springs many years ago, and there were all of these old people and then us. I mean, at that point, we weren't old people. Um, but the old people kind of walked around, you know, slowly until the dance music started. And then the most graceful movements began to take shape as these people moved around the floor in a, in a glorious way. And Annameth and I looked at each other and thought, we, we don't know how to do that. In fact, we weren't allowed to do that. My dad danced his way into heaven this week. And I'm pretty sure he was dancing. I know that would have been dancing when he got there. I know who he was going to dance with. And maybe the Lord took him aside and said, Leslie, that idea of quitting ballroom dancing, I wish you hadn't quit. He can't take that back and get a life again, but that's what it was. Um, another sort of quip is, lips that touch liquor will never touch mine. And I grew up, and many of you did, saying you're not allowed to drink. It, there's wisdom in that. Um, I remember when our kids were small, we, we actually took them in the Okanagan Valley on winery tours, on, on vineyard tours, so that they could see there was actually some appropriate alcohol because there was a, a campaign that the government sponsored there, and it said, drink, drive, die. So my kids had that in their heads, right? If you drink and drive, you'll die. That's true. But they looked at everybody that they saw that was drinking and thinking, oh, they must be bad people because... Bad people drink and drive and die. And we wanted to say, you know, there are ways to drink that are not bad things. But growing up in the church, we were not allowed to drink. I was part of a denomination in which I needed to sign an affidavit that I would not drink. And uh, for a period of time, a friend and I were traveling from the West to Ontario for some board meetings. And as we were flying... You know, of course, back then, they would actually serve nice meals and a glass of wine with, with your dinner, and they would serve wine. So my friend had wine with his dinner, and then as we landed, he said, oh, quick, i got to have some breath mints. I said, why? He said, well, I'm, I'm Scottish, right? So I'm not going to say no to free wine, but if they smell it on my breath, they're going to take away my ordination. I think, oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, well, things have changed, right? I mean, I remember Christian weddings would never have alcohol served at a reception. And I remember sort of the pivot in time when it became okay to have wine with a meal at a, at a wedding. But it was part of a Christianity that said, 
you can't do rather than what you could do. Uh, one of the churches that I worked at had a, a, sort of a membership covenant, and one of the statements of the membership covenant said that we were to abstain from worldly amusements. And I remember having some conversations and saying, what are worldly amusements? What are the things that these people were worried about? And this was back in the early 1900s that they would have come up with these lists and I asked my friend, what are worldly amusements? I mean, all kinds of things come to mind that apparently we're not supposed to do. Worldly amusements were, were to be shunned. Um, when I was growing up, Christians did not play professional sports. Um, my uncle was a professional soccer player, Bob, and uh, he was read out by his church. That means he was taken in front of the oversight, the elders, and they took away his church membership because he was a professional soccer player. It's ridiculous, right? Because now look at it. I mean, if we have a Christian, um, you know, famous athlete, we love when that person takes the opportunity to talk about his relationship with Christ or her relationship with Christ. Um, when I was growing up, you, you didn't go to the theater, as we called it, right? The cinema. You weren't allowed to go to the cinema. And not that long ago, that was still something that you shouldn't do. It would be one of the things to avoid. Um, when Annabeth and I had little kids, we asked her mom and dad to babysit for us one time as we were going to the show. I think it was Gandhi. I think that was the movie. It was a really long, no? Yeah, I think it was. And Annabeth's mom said, don't tell your dad where you're going. Why? Well, because he would, he would be shocked if you're going to the show. Th things have changed, right? Is there anything wrong with all of the things that we were supposed to avoid? There are warnings about excess and all of that. But there's nothing wrong with any of those things. And yet, those things marked our Christianity. They marked our church adherence, that if, if you're a good church person, you didn't do all of these things, the whole list of things, and you could probably come up with some more things that um, you were not allowed to do. I, I want to come back to James chapter 4 and try to figure out what he's talking about when he says um, the things to avoid. So, the, just the first couple of verses really grab my attention because they're, they're really inflammatory. So what we see, first of all, is that James says this, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And when I read that, I thought, what? Who commits murder? Um, later, I looked later on in the letter, there's a reference to, to someone's life having been taken and it having been taken without the person having, having any recourse or he wasn't really a problem. And it, James basically blames rich people for taking a poor person's life. That's the only thing I could connect it to in his letter. But apart from that, I hear him writing a letter to Christian people like us and saying, yeah, you lust and you can't have it, so you murder. And he goes, you do? We do? One of the things that we recognize in James is that he is very much a Jesus follower. So he's Jesus' brother, or his half-brother. 
Um, but someone has noted that probably half of the content of James is actually alluding to the teaching of Jesus or actually even quoting Jesus. So, so James is really a Jesus letter. Many people have sort of put James and Paul in, in different corners and said Paul thinks this way and James thinks this way. And oftentimes they'll also identify the fact that James is really the Jesus-saying teacher of the early church. So it could very well be that James is thinking to Jesus teaching about murder. And when Jesus talked about murder, he said, Now, you've heard, don't murder. But I tell you this, that if you hate anybody, you're a murderer already in your heart. So it could be that, that James is, is going with that sort of spin on the idea of murder. But that's what he says. You lust and do not have, so you murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So I'm picturing this church of people who are thinking murderous thoughts <laughs> about one another and who are terribly envious of one another. And you think, well, that couldn't be, could it? That there wouldn't be a church like that, would there? Well, James is poking at something, and it's not really that he's trying to identify the things to avoid, but I think really what he's doing is, is pointing at our hearts, and he's saying, there's something wrong with you, don't you know that? There's something wrong with you because you lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and can't obtain it, so you fight and quarrel, and then he carries on and says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask but do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So now we have people who are murderous in their thoughts about one another, who are envious towards one another, and who want things and pray for those things but don't get them because the reason they're praying for those things is the wrong reason. They have bad motives. Something is wrong with what's in their heart. And so they're praying for things but not getting answers to their prayers. So if we were to try to imagine what this church looked like, it was a church with people who have these, you know, list of things to avoid that actually are things that they don't avoid including hating one another, at least if not murdering one another, being envious of one another, and then having prayer meetings that are all about the wrong things. And we would, we would say, well, surely we're not like that. And James would probably be, be kind of cantankerous enough to come and say, yes, you are. And, and we say, well, no, we're not. But what James is pointing out you know, whether it's as extreme as he suggests or not, there's something really bad about us, right? And it, it, it's really the elephant in the room. It's the elephant in the room of our country. It's the elephant in the room of our world that there's something really wrong or the emperor has no clothes and the church has no clothes. Society has no clothes, right? That there's something we have to face up to that is actually called sin, as far as the Bible is concerned. What James is pointing at is the thing that is in back of all of the problems that we face in our lives and in our community relationships. It is the matter of sin. 
reformed theologians follow the Luthers and Calvins and, and various others. And back in, in those Reformation times, um, they had a very strict sort of doctrine. And one of the aspects of their doctrine was what we now call total depravity. Um, if you're a good Calvinist, um, you, you would understand the, the acrostic TULIP. So T-U-L-I-P stands for the aspects of being a very strict Calvinist. Um, total depravity, unmerited favor, limited atonement, irresistible pardon, and then persistent grace. We, we won't be going through all of that today, don't worry. The first point is the, the one that I want to talk about, total depravity. We are not willing to acknowledge that today. Even as, as Christians, even as Bible students, we find that a really hard pill to swallow. Because total depravity is the doctrine that says there's nothing good in us. And you think, well, come on, that, that's a little bit harsh, isn't it? Well, at least twice, and, and I, I know more than that in the Bible, there's a verse where God is, you know, attributed, or it's attributed to God as having said, there's no one good, no one who does any good, not even one. It talks about God coming to see, is there anybody that looks towards God? And there wasn't even one, not even one. And then Paul brings that up in, in Romans, and the Bible seems to support what then became this doctrine, the total depravity of man, that in us there's no good. And that is hard to, to, to get your heads around, isn't it? Because we do good things. Our neighbors do good things. People who are not in a relationship with God the way we think it, they need to be do good things. Why do they do good things? It's, it's, it's a conundrum, but they do do apparently good things, and we do think that there is something good in all of us that's to be you know, kind of found and to be a witness to the, the goodness of a creator God and the goodness of humanity. But the Bible's kind of scathing in, in saying, you're not good. Don't be telling me you're good. You're not. And when we say, well, we are pretty good, then Jesus kind of comes along and says, are you? Well, we don't murder anybody, don't you? Do you hate anybody? Oh, yeah, 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 but that, that's not murder. If you hate somebody in your heart, you've already murdered them. So, you know, if, if you find yourself saying, boy, I'd kill for that, it's probably true, Jesus would say, because inside your heart, there's a darkness that would go to some incredible lengths to get what you want, to take care of you, um, to look after your interests. And James says, yeah, there are things to avoid. There, you should be avoiding this murder that's going on, whatever it was. You should be avoiding this envy that's going on, whatever that looked like. And you should stop praying prayers that are simply selfish prayers where you want God to be at your beck and call, and you want God to do your bidding. We'll have no more of that. And the way James kind of sizes it all up is to say, 
that's being an adulteress. You're 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 being an en- enemy of God. You've you've decided to love somebody other than God, and you can't do that. You you can't love the devil and his world and God at the same time. And and the Bible says James says that the spirit that you have in you is a jealous spirit. So we have this shocking kind of expose where James is saying, you know, don't be so proud of yourselves. There's a lot of rottenness there. And there's a lot that is under the surface that you're not ready to get exposed. And so because of that, you need to repent. You need to submit. You need to leave off all of these things. But James would help us understand that what's in there that really is the problem is this selfishness where we are ferociously self-protective. We're ferociously self-serving. And if none of us deals with the struggle with self, um, that person has has attained a level of sanctification that probably none of us would, would be willing to claim. That That the self of me is is a dark place many times. And James says there's actually adultery going on. Um, you're supposed to be in love with God, but you're in love with the world. We look back at the way it used to be. We look back at the things we weren't supposed to do. And those things were called worldly. If you said that a person was a worldly person back then, that was not a compliment. Today, it is a bit of a compliment, right? He's a worldly guy. That means he's got sort of worldly wisdom, worldly ways, worldly finesse. But back then, if we said that, it meant, oh, she's too worldly. He's too worldly. She's too worldly because she wears makeup. That's what they would have said in my church. She's too worldly because she does her hair. Um, He's too worldly because he has such a nice car. And all of these things, we would say, are that's not being worldly, is it? That's not the way we see it now. But there is a phenomenon called worldliness that James says we need to go after. Being worldly in in a true biblical sense is is to really prefer and love the world and, and to be in many ways actually inspired and... Um, and moved by the God of this world. And, and so we would say, well, what, what does that mean? It, it means that there is a God of this world who is working really hard to have us love his ways. That, that, that he inspires. Um, Jesus actually identifies Satan as being the god of this world, the, the prince of this world. And, and when the prince of this world encounters Jesus in the temptations, the prince of this world promises Jesus all kinds of things. And we would say, well, he's got no right to promise those to Jesus or to offer those to Jesus. But Jesus didn't encounter him. He, he didn't, when, when the devil said, I will give you all these kingdoms, Jesus didn't say they're not yours to give. He said, he went back to scripture and, and told Satan where he needed to get off. But the point is, 
he really is the prince of this world. He is ruling this world and this world's ways. And worldliness, in the proper understanding, is actually being bought into that system. It, it's actually being somehow committed to the ways that Satan is empowering as the ways of the world. And it gets to be very difficult for us to sort through what those things are. Because many of the things that are in the world and that are of the world are okay things. They're, they're, they're not you know, things to be avoided on a list. They're far more subtle than that. But, but when we look into our hearts and ask why we want things, maybe it does get to the third part of this little criticism that James offers about our not receiving when we ask. And James has already said, you, you don't ask. And James would have thrown himself back to the teaching of Jesus, who said, ask and you'll receive. So there's a whole theology around the asking, around praying. And James says, yeah, but it goes awry for you. It doesn't work for you. Because when you do ask, you ask for the wrong things. You ask with the wrong motives to, to use the things that you're asking for to satisfy your own desires, your own lusts, your, your own bents. And because of that, of course God's not going to answer your prayers. Of course he's not going to give you those things because inside you there's a rottenness. And whether you work it out in your relationships with one another in, in terms of a relational hatred for them or a relational envy of what they have and what they can do, all of those things, um, when it gets down to your religious life and, and you start talking God talk, you're still in the same realm. You're still loving the world. You're worldly people. You are adulteresses, and, and God is jealous for you, and he, he wants no part of the way that you are aligning your life. So, so how do we discern what it would be to be like that? I, I guess what James is pointing out, that, that it's something inside it's not the outside. It's it's not, you know, the things. It's not the 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 activities. It's not the deeds. As much as what's inside, when we ask the question, what do I really want? Um, and the list of things to avoid, if we avoided all those things, we could still be entirely worldly because inside of us we would actually want some things that are part of the world. They, they may be very respectful. They may be, you know, you know the terms of success in, in our profession, in our, in our job. They may be a, about our performance physically in, in whatever we do or whatever we compete in. Um, they may be in, in these realms. And, and when we get into looking around our hearts, we would say, yeah, there doesn't need to be some cleaning up going on in there. There doesn't need to be a, a rearranging in there because we want the wrong things. We want to be happy, maybe at the expense of others or at the expense of better things that wouldn't necessarily be happy things for us. Um, 
we want to be successful and, and sometimes that's good, but for what reason do we want to be successful? So it, it, it's harder than someone just giving us a list and saying, there you go. If you can check all the boxes on that list, you're fine. God might still say, no, 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 no. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about what you want. It's about what's inside you. And the devil loves to poke around in your heart and to tease you after things that look as though they would really make you feel and be better than you you do and are right now. Many ways we know that following Christ is the harder way. It's not the easier way. It's very often the harder way. It's the right way, and it will end up being the satisfying way and the rewarded way, but it's often the harder way. There, there are choices that will be called for us to make where we would have to say, hmm, if I make this choice, it's actually catering more to, to the me and what I want and me being happy, satisfied, okay, well, than it is asking what, what God wants or how God wants me to live. So, so is it a list of things to avoid? No, it's not a list of things to avoid. Yes, in general terms, but not because avoiding things is the Christian life. But going into the heart and asking, who, who do I love? What, what do I love? What do I want in my life? And, and what does God want in my life? The verse I'd, I'd like to kind of focus on as, as we try to kind of bring this home is what James says in the seventh verse of this chapter. He says, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So, I think we imagine the devil as making overt um, attempts to seduce us. We, we think the devil is right there, and, and we know what he's up to. We, we don't, because what he tempts us with is very subtle. It seems very good. Um, it, you know, if, if he just came on with things that were just terribly sinful, terribly wicked, we would know where those thoughts are coming from or where those temptations are coming from. But when he brings things that are pretty, you know, ordinary, and we, we just give in to them and say, yeah, that's, o- that's okay, um, in back of them, we find that there's a Satan kind of getting a foothold and saying, huh, I see it was easy to seduce you in this area, so I'm going to bring on some more. I'm, I'm going to just, now that you've tasted a little bit of this, um, and it, it hasn't done you any harm, right? So a little bit more, a little bit more. What's so wrong with it? It's very hard to discern unless we actually have an active turn of our hearts and our minds towards God and God's ways and God's will. So resist the devil because he is here and he is wanting to entice you. He's wanting to entice me. So I must resist the devil. And then 
instead of succumbing to his overtures, um, James says that I should draw near to God and he will draw near to me. The, the, the direction of this verse is really interesting. Resisting the devil has the sense that the devil is right there and, and there's something present and immediate to be resisted. But God is not right there in, in the direction that this verse takes because James says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Um, I, I kind of envision, going back to the, the dance floor, um, that there are two partners vying for a dance with me. One is the devil, and he's right there. And he's saying, I'm a good dancer. Come dance with me. And it's easy just to say, yeah, sure, let's dance. And there's another partner who's standing off from the dance floor. And James' injunction is that, that we should dance with that person. We should say no to the devil as our partner. And we should notice the one who is making a promise to us that if we invite him into the dance, he will draw near. So where's the work here? The work is ours to say, it's so confusing, but, but I do understand that the devil is trying to seduce me. And he's doing it in subtle ways that I sometimes can't really even discern, but I know he's doing it. So I should always be asking myself, why am I thinking this way? Why am I wanting to do this thing? Is it really because of my relationship with God and, and it would be a healthy thing in that relationship? Or is it something that's making me kind of turn away and, um, and, and give in to this world and this world's ways? Um, and God is saying, if, if you will dance with me, I will lead you into a more joyful dance. I, I will lead you in a, in a most wonderful dance. But it'll be up to you to make the decision to ask me to be the dance partner. And all the while, the devil is saying, dance with me, dance with me, dance with me. He's telling you that when you watch television. He's telling you that by advertising. He's telling you that by subtle messages in all kinds of art forms. And the Holy Spirit is, is a gentleman in the sense that he always waits for an invitation. He, he doesn't just sort of burst on the scene. And we're, we're told that we should be very careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And how would we grieve him? Well, we would grieve him by resisting him and saying, I'm not interested in, in, in that or in you. And then the Holy Spirit will just sort of go back off into the shadows and say, well, when you want to dance with me, let me know, because I'll be here. But you can grieve the Spirit and and lose the effect of his presence in your life. You never lose his presence in your life, but you lose the effect of that. And James is saying, listen, submit to God. Like, submit is a very strong word because he's, he's really asserting and, and assuming 
that we are ready to submit to ourselves. We're ready to build ourselves up. We're ready to be those vain rainbow fish people, right? We're all good for that. And James says, you got to stop that. And you have to submit to God. So humility, in fact, is, is required in this matter. That we say, I, I, re- I really don't know what's best for me or for people around me. I, God does, but I don't. Um, and the things that I think I want, I, I, I probably will discover I didn't really want them, didn't really need them, or I shouldn't really want them or, or need them. And, and so we sort ourselves out as we, as we hit it through. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. There's a phenomenal promise that the devil may seem as though he comes on with incredible strength. Um, and yet James says, if you resist him, he will flee. Flee. That, that means he will run away. So um, while he comes on with, with a great presentation, he knows that he's a defeated enemy and that if you resist him, you have every right to, to resist him. You have every right to say, you don't have a dance card. So leave. Um, I, I'm not going to be dancing this dance with you. I was wondering how we practice this out in 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 our minds, hearts, and in in our desiring. And I began with talking about the kind of Christianity or church that says, you know. Don't do all of these things. Not doing all those things does not produce joy or, or a real faith. It, it, it produces legalism. And legalism is, is one of the most awful sort of versions of, of religion. So rather than um, not doing the things I shouldn't do, what 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 do I do instead of that? Where do I go instead of that? A long time ago, a friend of mine um, had a, a beautiful wife. I, I mean, she was she was honestly a head turner. When you saw her, you would have thought she's a beautiful person, gorgeous person. And he had an affair on her. He cheated on her. And the person he cheated with was homely. Excuse my assessment there, but especially given the woman he was married to, who was honestly gorgeous, he had an affair with someone that wasn't, and and that caused all of us who knew him to shake our heads or scratch our heads and say, "Why?" So put that out of your minds. But the point is. When there is a beautiful partner, why would you turn to someone that is not a beautiful partner? The answer is not to say, well, you really shouldn't leave your beautiful partner. The answer is to be enthralled with the beauty of your partner. So the answer to living the Christian life is not um, to not do things. But it's to understand the beauty and the glory of the relationship that you have with this shy dance partner, the Holy Spirit and God the Father, 
having been demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. If you have some reading time this summer, there are lots of good books being written now about the beauty of God, about the beauty of a relationship with God and with Christ and with, with the Holy Spirit. And, and just encouraging us to press into that, to press into how incredible the partner is who's offering to dance with us. To understand how incredibly great his love for us is. And to, to, to get to places in our lives where we see the world for what it is and say, I really don't want that kind of a life. And to see God for who he is, the lover that he is, the fact that he gazes upon us with absolute devotion and fondness and to realize that he invites us into a walk with him that is fantastic, that, is, that actually even grabs back some of the things that we weren't allowed to do and does them with him in tow or with us in tow with him. And where we say as we watch a movie and having gone to the theater to the dismay of my parents and grandparents, to talk with him about what was that movie about? What were the glimpses in that movie or that art form of the beauty of God, the beauty of creation, the beauty of, of the future that there is for those who know God and who, who are in a relationship with him, walking with him? Let all of those things become so large to us that a less than beautiful adulterous relationship is just anathema, anathema to us. We just say, I'm not interested in that. I am, I am so enthralled in my relationship with Christ that I'm not interested in those other things. I don't have to decide what I'm not allowed to do. All things are lawful. Paul says, not everything is, is expedient. Not everything is, is appropriate. But y you don't need to live by a law about what you're not allowed to do and what you have to do. You're invited to live in a relationship with God by which you call him Abba and in which he calls you son or daughter and in which you enjoy this life here in anticipation of the life that is beyond this, that will be even greater than what has begun as you begin to discover why it is that you want to follow Christ, why it is that you want to be a, a friend of God. Um, it's not a religious thing at all. And the world will keep on enticing. So you can go ahead and murder one another, be envious of one another, and pray empty prayers see how that goes or you can say wait a minute everything about God is beautiful every single thing about God is beautiful why don't I get over there and have a look at what that means discover more of that um, so the dance is on and the question is who will I dance with today this week and the rest of the summer God bless <laughs>